Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Diner Talks with James. I'm James. Super excited for another amazing episode. This week, we have Christina Perez Simmons, uh, a wonderful friend and a brilliant woman. Uh, I'm excited for you to meet her as always, and I'm excited for you all to be here. My friends, I'm excited to say, I'm just, I'm just going to say excited a few more times, um, but uh, we got some cool things happening with Diner Talks, moving and shaking. We got a theme song that's going to be coming out in a few episodes. Our last, our last episode guest, Douglas Wydick, is making it for us. Um, and so, uh, really excited y'all. We got some cool things in the work, but always, as always, we got to start off with tonight's show with the top three, top three, my friends, I went, uh, I went home to New York recently. I went home to New York recently and, uh, and, and there were some phrases that I found myself saying when I came back from New York, like, whenever I come back, it's always the most, Hey, Hey, don't we say over there? Hey, all right. Oh, Hey, Oh, Oh, right. I always have these New York phrases that I love, but there are some phrases that I heard that just reminded me of how iconic, uh, New York is. So, uh, the first one of those phrases is a very simple one. Go ahead. Now go ahead. Now it sounds really polite, right? Like if you get if you if you both show up at the bagel shop together, and the first person goes, hey, "Go ahead," it sounds like it's very polite. Like, "Oh, please, after you." No, there's always this bite of sarcasm. Like, "Yeah, sure, okay, no, no, please let me roll out the red carpet for you." No, please go ahead. I just I just love the little bite of sass in every New York comment. Next, uh, the next thing um, is that in the South they say, "Well, bless your heart, bless his heart." Oh. Just bless their heart. Oh, my God. In New York, we say the phrase, listen, not for nothing, but uh, I'm about to drop a little honesty on you. Or the other phrase that New Yorkers love to say is, listen, no disrespect, but your mother's ugly. You know what I mean? Uh, so instead of bless your heart, it's no disrespect. Hey, not for nothing, but I love that. And the last phrase that I missed hearing all the time is, oh, you're from Jersey? Sorry to hear about that. All right, my friends, next, up next, uh, the top three shows that I have binge-watched during quarantine. Top three shows that I've binge-watched during quarantine. First off, Ugly Delicious. If you haven't watched this, it's a documentary-type series, docu-series with Michael Chang, and he explores all these really amazing foods um, and how they are done around the world. What does pizza look like around the world? What does meat on a stick look like from around the world? What do dumplings look like from around the world? It is done so well. It's incredible. Next. Uh, is Letter Kenny. It's maybe my favorite show on earth right now. It's called Letter Kenny. It's about these uh, these good old boys from a small town in Canada. It's one of the funniest shows I've ever seen. Letter Kenny is I'm gonna mail you a letter to some guy named Kenny. Uh, check that one out. It's on Hulu. And last but not least, as soon as quarantine started, Tina said, "Listen." We got to come up with some shows to watch. I think we got to dig deep in the archives. And my friends, we just finished Boy Meets World. And let me tell you, some of those Mr. Feeney quotes still slap, y'all, okay? Mr. Feeney still out here teaching people today. If you watch Boy Meets World growing up, let me know. Uh, I can uh, I can honestly say uh, that Topanga helped me become a man. So uh, last but not least, last but not least, uh, 
my guest tonight, Christina Perez, she and I went to Clemson University today uh, to get, uh, not together. We, we were ships in the night, uh, but we both went to Clemson. Go Tigers, baby. Uh, we out here. And these are my top three uh, Clemson moments. First off, <clears throat> that one night where I made out with someone in the pouring rain in the middle of the band practice field. <laughs> that happened. Anyway, uh, next, Clemson football. Of course, those, those game days are incredible. Listening to the band that shakes the Southland watching them run down the hill. Now, unfortunately, when I was there, they weren't that good, but it was still special. And last but not least, my favorite karaoke memory, and I know Christina knows about this, is doing karaoke. My favorite Clemson memory is doing karaoke at TD's, my friends. Uh, the cohort would always go over there, and everybody would have a really good time. And I won the karaoke competition. It was a 10-week bracket-style karaoke competition. I won it with bye, 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 and I won a 1000 bucks, my friends. Shout out to that. Those are my top three. Top three. I'm excited to bring out our guest. Excited to bring out our guest. She is the one, the only, Miss Cristina Perez Simmons. Uh, and she is an incredible, incredible woman. Just a badass of a woman. Uh, she... Uh, is an expert in instructional design. Uh, she's a, a wonderful facilitator and an immaculate, a, incredible educator. Um, she is also a badass Latina woman. Uh, and, uh, and she's just a dear friend. I'm really excited for you to meet her. Like I said, we both went to Clemson together. So we went back and, and friends, I also officiated her and Jesse's wedding, which was one of the most special days of my life. I don't care what it was for them. But with that being said, let me bring her out right now. Ladies and gentlemen, clap it out, even though I can't hear you for Christina. I feel like I need to do a little bow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and bow to the audience. Yeah, and record that intro to hype me up all the time. All the time. <laughs> What's going on, fam? How are you? Um, I am good. You know, just always here at home mm -hmm. and wondering what day it is. And, yeah, you know, COVID. Yep, that's about but right. Having a good time. <laughs> that's yeah. but having a good time while doing it for sure. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, my favorite thing, one of my favorite things to do whenever I come down and get to see you down in Durham, uh, is is you take me to one of my favorite places, uh, and we eat churros and drink hot chocolate literally around the corner from you. Uh, yes. This is some of my favorite Christina Perez moments. Uh, yes. Is that place still open? Are you still able to go over there and get infinite amounts of churros? Uh, yes. So they're still open for takeout only. Um, they have been really great with their, um, you know, like social distancing efforts, but still staying open. Um, I like to consider myself an unofficial brand ambassador for mm -hmm. Coco Cinnamon's, the coffee shop here in Durham. Um, they also have a roaster, a Little Waves Roastery, and their coffee is my favorite. If you have ever talked to me about coffee, you have like absolutely heard me talk about little roasters um, or little waves roastery and in cocoa cinnamon it's so good and the churros yeah are amazing churros are bomb i mean first off if you're gonna make a churro right in front of me i'm probably gonna bust out a wedding ring you know what i'm saying like i mean my standards are right about there uh <laughs> and uh <laughs> they're just so that place is so damn good uh and uh yeah it's awesome but you are a bit of a coffee enthusiast maybe i mean are you would you say do you go so far as to call yourself a coffee snob like where, where are you out on the coffee spectrum would you judge uh, people at starbucks for ordering americanos or would you like where are you at 
Um, I, don't, I don't have a lot of judgment for people and their coffee choices, unless it's like all cream with a splash of coffee, then I might have like a little judgment. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I like to think of myself as like a coffee snob, like a wannabe coffee snob. So, you know, like I'll taste coffee and be like, oh, this has depth in it. But like, if you were to ask me like, what are the notes in it? I'm like, I don't know, but I like it. Um, that's yeah. how I feel about wine as well. Like if I go wine tasting and people get like, here's the tannins and the notes. And I'm like, I like this or I don't like this. So that's kind of where I'm at in coffee. Um, but yeah, I love it. I love the ritual of making it in the morning. Um, Jesse, my partner, always gives me a hard time because I have five different coffee making devices and I'm the only one in our home that drinks coffee. Um, so yeah. You have but they five all... different coffee making devices? Um, like, okay, so we got our French press. You got a Keurig? Um, I have an espresso. So I have a, my oh, French me. press. Excuse okay, there it is. Espresso. There it is. Level up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> shout out to my coworkers. That was a wedding gift for, for us, but really for me. Um, although I do sometimes make Jesse lattes with it. So I have the French press, the Nespresso, a Kalita Wave pour over. Um, I have a cold brew pitcher um, just to make cold brew in the fridge. And then I also have a mocha pot. And shout out to Nils who's on who got me that mocha pot for like espressos and stuff. So, wow, that is that is a passion uh, like I don't know. Um, <clears throat> that's incredible. Um, yeah. And they all make like a slightly different coffee. They bring out different flavors in the coffee. So even though Jesse gives me a hard time about it, I'm like, they all do something different. And you can and taste those differences. You can taste those differences. I yeah, I can. Like, a, yeah. Don't discount. <laughs> don't discount your uh, your skills over here. Sure. Maybe you're not picking up like mm, I'm noticing a little bit of uh, South African dirt in this one. Um, but <laughs> but still, uh, you you I feel like you got some chops in that department. Yeah, I do. And, and you know, Coco Cinnamon's where I learned a lot of it. Um, I feel like they, again, I'm like their unofficial brand ambassador. They yeah. did like coffee tastings or coffee cuppings really is what they're called. Um, and I've gone to some of their classes pre-COVID and then virtually during COVID um, to learn, you know, about coffee and how they source coffee and yeah. um, how they really work hard to do, you know, living wage. So I've learned also a lot about the coffee industry and how I can be a better and more conscientious consumer too. Okay. Interesting. Tell me more about that. I mean, what's, what, uh, like for individuals that are interested in coffee, I'm going to insult you really quick. You know, this, that I go to Coco cinnamon for the churros <laughs> a and the hot chocolate second, um, because they have a, ch a hot chocolate tasting menu. It's yeah. lit. I, I just love that place. Um, uh, so I don't really know anything about coffee. I wake up naturally obnoxious. I don't need, <laughs> I don't need all of these different things in the morning. I just kind of like pop out of the bed. And once I've committed to getting out of the bed, that also means I'm already making jokes and, and, Tina is always like, really? We're doing this this early, huh? Okay, <laughs> interesting. Um, so she is someone who does uh, often require a little bit of coffee to get kickstarted in the morning. Um, but so many people love coffee. What does it mean to uh, to know how to better source your coffee or to more ethically do it? Like, you know, what what have you learned that you would pass on to others? Yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, I always recommend buying local or buying from like a smaller roaster because um, they typically do a lot more to build relationships with the coffee farmers that they're working with um, mm -hmm. to ensure that they're paying them a living wage. Um, I know, and what I've learned with Cocoa Cinnamon is they work with a partner to connect with coffee farmers. And that partner also works with coffee farmers to help them grow higher quality coffee um, so they can mm -hmm. get their money's worth out of it too. So um, yeah, the 
when you look at inflation rates over the last couple of decades, the coffee, the price of coffee hasn't increased the way our like the dollar has. And so there's a lot of places out there that may not necessarily be paying a living wage to folks that are farming coffee. So yeah, so just looking, I mean, just ask if you have a local roaster, ask where they source their coffee from, ask if they're committed to paying both their staff and their coffee farmers a living wage. And oftentimes they'll have information about that on their websites as well. Yeah. Uh, that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, let's, uh, uh, screw you Maxwell house, right? Your house is getting <laughs> bigger and nobody else is profiting everybody from you. Um, and, uh, yeah, the big, these big coffee companies. So that's interesting. Yeah, and there are so many, I feel like coffee kind of like beer, um, is having this really beautiful moment in the country, uh, where like there's all these different roasteries that are popping up and, uh, you walk in and there's sacks of beans everywhere and, you know, and, and it's kind of cool. So people have more of an opportunity to to do it. Uh, and, and oftentimes I find that it's also kind of like beer where if you spent your whole life drinking Bud Light and then all of a sudden you drink something uh, from a, a local brewery, you're like, oh shoot, I never knew beer could taste like this. Right. And that's kind of what you've done. You've now flipped that script where it's like, I'm not going back to Columbia house, right? <laughs> like I'm not, <laughs> yeah. like I'm not doing that anymore um, because I know that the extra 50 cents, the extra dollar a bag is equal to my joy and also yes. uh, the ethics in my heart. Yeah. And I think when you can find a roaster whose values align with yours too, I mean, I'm very grateful to have that in in little waves um, and they are a Latina led women forward coffee shop too. So there's a lot of women that work there and um, it's just, it's really cool to see what's happened there. That coffee shop opened around the same time that we moved into the neighborhood um, so it's just been cool to have that around the corner. I typically work, I work remote full time, even like pre COVID. So that was often a spot I went to just to, if I needed to get out of the house for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's awesome. That's awesome. I love coffee. I could talk about it all day. You really could. And I love yeah. that. I love that. Now, here's the interesting thing is that here in the States, uh, we most often associate, <clears throat> associate coffee coming from Central America, South America and whatnot. Uh, but what's fascinating, one of the largest co producers of coffee in the world is the Ivory Coast. Um, mm -hmm. But you can't get Ivory Coast coffee in the United States. Um, and so we don't really know a lot about that. In general, most other countries laugh at what the United States calls coffee coffee um, because it's like some weak sauce, low octane, uh, watered down version. Um, and so that's just kind of funny in its own right. Um, but, uh, but still, uh, as you, as we talked about, most of the coffee that we know about comes from, uh, Central America and, uh, and South America and whatnot. Now you are a very proud Latina, uh, and, uh, it is something that you never shy away from. It's something that within moments of meeting you, I think it was in your introduction to me. Um, right. And the way that you say the way you say certain words, it's like me where it's kind of like me where I'm I'm not as Italian as you are Latino, um, uh, but I'll still say like a mozzarella, right? Like I'll just be having a normal conversation. I'll be like, yeah. So the other night I had some managotti and it was really lovely. Um, and uh, but so I love talking to you about your heritage um, and about uh, what it means for you to be Latina. Now, you grew up in California, correct? I did. Yeah, I grew up right outside LA um, in a city called Whittier. My mom's on and I think she put a shout out. She's still in Whittier now. Um, so 
yeah, but I've lived on the eastern half of the United States since about 2012. Since 2012, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And now, where uh, where did your family uh, where did your family come from in in Central America? Is Mexico? Yes. Yeah, yeah. My family's from Mexico. They're both from the my parents are both from the state of Jalisco, um, Jalisco? which you probably know Jalisco because you might know Guadalajara. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, if you like tequila, you can also thank the state of Jalisco for that. Um, so yeah, so my parents are both from that state, from different parts of the state, but they met in California. Um, so after they immigrated here. Um, so I grew up probably up until my freshman year of high school going on going regularly, like annually to Mexico, maybe once, twice a year, um, often a couple weeks at a time to make the trip worth it to go visit um, both my mom and my dad's side of the family that's still there. Yeah. <clears throat> that's uh that's awesome that's awesome i've had a few guests on in the in uh in previous weeks uh that uh that identify as black and they talk about this moment of when they fell in love with their blackness i don't know if you had a similar moment in your world and if you, if you didn't that's okay you don't lose points um but but i'm wondering was there a moment that you can think back to where you fell in love with your with your background your heritage your your family history yeah, um, I don't know if I can think of a specific moment, but I can think of an incident that really spurred my my identity develop and development mm. and my understanding of my Latinidad and my heritage. I mean, growing up, growing up where I grew up, I was surrounded by people who looked like me or had similar experiences. You know, I could go not even a eight minute walk from my house and find like the Mexican bakery or a grocery store with like the things we needed. And my family was nearby. So, you know, we grew up being together a lot for like large family gatherings. Um, and so, and even my, I went to Cal State Fullerton for my undergrad. It was, it's a minority serving institution. I think when I was there, I, I, over a third of the students identified as Hispanic or Latinx. So I, was just constantly surrounded by it. And it wasn't until I was getting ready to leave California. So after, after I graduated from college, I became a leadership consultant for my sorority. And in that role, I traveled the country working with chapters at, at universities and colleges. And I think I ended up working with somewhere around 26, um, in 26 different states with about 30 different campuses. Yeah. Um, and when I was applying for that job, there was a volunteer who, it, you know, totally well-intentioned, but made a comment to one of my advisors that, you know, Christina has a lot of great experiences that are going to help her be successful in this role. Um, she's going to be so great in it. And she's ethnic in the face of what a lot of our chapters are becoming. And that was one of those moments when I found out what was said. I mean, it was, it was a microaggression, um, but I had never connected my identity with my success. Um, you know, I... Yeah was raised to, you know, you work hard to get what you need and to succeed in life. And that's what I did. And that was the first time where, you know, there was this even like notion that I could get something because of an identity versus my skill set or my experience. Um, and so I will say that that moment, it really spearheaded how I started to think about my identity. So mm. I think between that and leaving Southern California, right? So I left I, I traveled primarily in the Midwest, but I was all around the country at different points. And that was the first time in my life where I was truly in spaces where there was no one who looks like me 
or no one who understood my experiences. And that that's actually when I started to realize like, oh, I, I got this deeper appreciation for my culture because I wasn't in it anymore. Um, and that, I mean, that was such an impactful moment for me. And it, you know, it's not like, I never want anyone to be microaggressed. And I also am grateful I was able to take that as a learning moment um, to really start to dig into my identity. And I spent the first yeah. six months on that job so nervous of how people were going to perceive me when I, you know, my first visits were to University of Arkansas and University of North Alabama. And Great at job. first, yeah, <laughs> at first, and they were some of my favorite chapters. I had an amazing experience as a consultant. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, and, but at first was like the stereotypical Californian and was like, I don't know where these states are. And I had to like pull up a state map to be like, where am I going? <laughs> um, and then once I figured out where I was going, I was like, oh, I'm going to the South. And like, what are they going to think of this little Mexican girl from California? Um, and, I, and I, like I said, I had a great experience. I think the only, you know, negative yeah. experience I had based on my identity was um, with a, a restaurant server one time who was not at all affiliated with the organization. So mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was really a pivotal moment in my identity development. And since then, you know, really have spent time doing a lot of like reflection and a lot of decon- decolonizing my thoughts and deconstructing internalized white supremacy and like all those things to help me better understand and appreciate where where I come from and where my yeah. family comes from. I love that. Christina, for those at home, uh, can you just tell people what is a microaggression? Yeah, so a microaggression is that like everyday slight that people make that causes harm, this is a very, like, <laughs> very, very simplified definition, but that causes harm to someone. And it's not that, like, overt, you know, racism that you think of when someone uses a racial slur or something that's very clearly derogatory, but it's just those, like, everyday things. So, you know, one I got a lot, especially after leaving California, was, like, where are you from? Like, no, where are you really from? And it was this, those those little comments that that make you feel like an other in the spaces that you're in. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. And we often hear the, uh, a lot of people often say, Oh my gosh, you're so articulate. Uh, right. Just those, <laughs> uh, yeah. You don't even think of, yeah. Where are you from? Some of those kind of conversations, uh, that, uh, weren't necessarily said out of anything, uh, any, any, I don't know, any hate or anything like that, but are right. kind of like, Oh, that was a little bit of an insult there. Um, <clears throat> right. Uh, it's like, yeah. Uh, you're a great comedian for a girl. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like those kind of moments. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, absolutely. So, so you said you brought up something that's interesting because when you were back in California and you're at this, you went to a college with a bunch of other individuals that, uh, that did look like you or close to you. Um, and so you kind of had these, let's call it 22 years of experience of being in a world where you were not the only uh, the only Latina in the room. And so uh, do you think, did you have a lot of pride for your background and for your heritage while you were there or it was something, or was it something that you could more easily take for granted? Cause it just kind of was what it was. That was your normal. Yeah. I'm, I definitely took it for granted. And, you know, while, you know, I was immersed in my culture in so many ways with my family and with the area that I was in. It, I just, I really didn't actively think about my identity, you know, outside of that. And it, and it really wasn't until later when I started really digging into like my own exploration of my identity that I actually realized how much like 
internalized racism or oppression that I had um, in my experience, right? Because, you know, whether it was told to me directly or indirectly by, you know, society, you, I got this messaging ingrained in me that like white is best, right? Like you have to be this way yeah. and talk this way or look this way um, to be accepted, to be the best, to be beautiful, you know, whatever those things might be. And as I started reflecting later, I started to realize how just ingrained that was in my decision-making and my, my actions. And, you know, I think back, having a quinceanera is like this rite of passage for, for women, for, and I'm going to speak specifically to Mexican women, right? So it's a birthday party celebrating your 15th, your 15th birthday. So kind of think of it as like our version of a sweet 16. And they're always this big elaborate things. And there's like essentially the equivalent of like a wedding party and all, it basically looks like a wedding. And when it came time it's, to start the dresses, planning, they go all out. It's crazy. Yes. The quinceaneras go. It's like, yeah, I mean, I grew yes. up on Long Island in New York. And so you talk <laughs> yeah. about a place that knows how to throw a sweet 16 party um, mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, all these wedding halls with more mirrors than you knew existed um, is Long Island's aesthetic. Um, and I'm still waiting for my parents to throw me a sweet 16. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> uh, we're getting there. But yeah, you're right. The quinceanera, this huge, uh, this huge momentous thing that truly does look like a wedding. Only when you see the uh the bride you're like she looks young um yeah, <laughs> but yeah exactly yes yeah yeah so yeah, please go, so, keep going yeah when it came time to start planning mine um i you know my mom and i talked about it and i was like mm, like that's a lot of money to spend i'd rather have a car and you're <laughs> we like okay and like my grandma was devastated um she was so sad and couldn't believe that we weren't having one but um i just i didn't want it at the time like i was like a car seems more practical. I will still say I, I am still like a practical, you know, gift giver and celebrator and gift receiver. Um, but that was a decision I made at the time. And then in hindsight, as I started to think back on that decision, you know, I realized that I, I think part of the reason I also did that was because it was like too Mexican. And it's like, did I, did I really want to like flaunt myself in that way? Because that's not, you know, the norm. Right. And and even like last year, when we were getting ready to celebrate my 30th birthday. I was like, maybe I should have like a doble quince and like have a small <laughs> celebration of makeup for it. Um, yeah. But yeah, so there, so there were moments growing up definitely where, you know, I was making decisions based on kind of how I internalized, you know, my identity, even um, like hoop earrings. I didn't start wearing hoop earrings till maybe like four or five years ago because I didn't want to look like a chola, which... Mm -hmm you know, had a negative connotation growing up. There's like a reclaiming of, of Chola fashion and Chola culture now, but had a negative connotation growing up and was often associated with like a gang culture. And so I didn't wear hoop earrings. I wouldn't buy them because I didn't want to be perceived in, as a bad Latina. Um, obviously now I wear them and I have lots of them and I love them, but there, there's just a lot of little things that I internalized. And again, like that, that microaggression I experienced going into you know, my post-college life really prompted me to start reflecting on, on my own identity and experiences yeah. and created a deeper appreciation for them too. One that I, I definitely didn't have before. Yeah.
Yeah, I love that. So when it came time for you, when you kind of, when that switch flipped, after you had left the house, after you'd been going around the country and whatnot, and that switch flipped for you where it's like, hey, I'm going, uh, I, I, I want to have more pride in this, or I want to I put this as a, a bigger priority of something that I want to talk about, be about, live, um, embody. Uh, during that, during those moments, it's so fascinating that happened during a time where it would have been arguably harder for you to do it. Like for example, uh, for example, when I first went down, uh, this is a very, very different example. But when I first went down uh, as a New Yorker to going to school in the South and going to school in the South, uh, I was very much like, I am not going to say y'all, right? Like you will catch me dead in the street saying the word y'all. No, get the hell out of here, bro. Right? Like I'm bringing my New Yorker down there. I'm getting more people down there to say, how you doing? Then how are y'all um and like and i kind of like brought this this passion down there and now i say y'all all the time and i'm a giant right. hypocrite um but uh but it's so interesting where uh, in, in a obviously very different way um when you choose uh to become more prideful in your background um i feel it right now we just moved to minnesota and here in minnesota i like my new york accent comes out more than it does even when i'm back in new york um just because it's like i need people to know i'm from new york right uh, and, uh, so for you, the fact that you learned that, uh, and decided to not flip that switch, but let's call it, let's say ramp it up. Um, how was doing that by the time you got kind of like into the South, right. And working in, in Atlanta and working in, uh, in North Carolina and whatnot. Yeah. So I think the, I mean, there's the benefit of the internet now, right? Like the internet allows people to share narratives and information in a way that, you know, I, I didn't have growing up, you know, my cousin and I talk a lot about this video media channel, it's called Better Like, and it's, um, you know, an entity of BuzzFeed, and they, their content, their video content means whatever they post articles, it's all centered around Latinx culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am so grateful that I found that platform at some point in the last couple of years, um, because it allows me to have this like shared experience with other folks and not even just folks who are Mexican, but folks, you know, across, you know, the Latin American identity spectrum. And so, you know, we're able to like connect across these, you know, funny things that we grew up with and like weird quirks that, you know, no one really understands unless you grew up in this culture. And yeah, so I'm like super grateful for that because I was able to find outlets in that in that sense. I was also able to connect with people um, yeah. when I did, you know, make me more meaningful connections with folks who had that shared identity. I will say, I mean, something that is like kind of problematic in Southern California is we make assumptions that everyone's Mexican. Um, and maybe that's just me as a Mexican. I don't know. But like not every Latinx person is Mexican. Um, sure. And I actually started to meet a in lot. In New York, it's Puerto Rican. You assume people are Puerto Rican in New York. Right. Yeah. And and when I moved to the eastern half of the United States was in areas where, you know, there are very few Mexican people or people of Mexican descent, but a lot of like Colombian and Peruvian and Puerto Rican. And um, it was really cool to be able to kind of connect across some shared aspects of our culture, but then also to see the differences Um, And yeah, and I will say too, my confidence in myself changed. um, And I I felt more confident in in that part of my identity. Um, I remember a few years back going to a conference in Texas. And before I went to the conference, I went to visit some family that I hadn't seen in like four years. 
And I, you know, I was talking to them in Spanish. I won't say my Spanish is the best. It's like very conversational. And, but I was talking to them in Spanish and my cousin was like, your Spanish is so much better now. Like what happened? And I was like, I don't know. But then as I thought about it, I'm like, it's because I'm like deconstructing all this like internalized oppression and I'm more, and therefore I'm more confident in this identity and, and more confident in being able to share that with other people. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> uh, that's beautiful. Um, uh, I, I love that. I, I think that I, <laughs> um, I, I love to speak Spanish. Uh, it's, the, it's the language that I learned the most uh, growing up. Um, but then I stopped practicing it. Um, and so now I'm stuck with sounding like I know how to speak Spanish because <laughs> I do the accent so well and I get myself into trouble very quickly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I get, cause yeah, people start talking to me at me way quicker than I'm ready to handle. It gets awkward. Um, but I'm glad to hear that you have, uh, tightened up those skills. Uh, and what a beautiful way that you did do that too. Um, as well, uh, through some of that, uh, that inner healing decolonization thought and whatnot. And, and that's, that brings up an interesting conversation because right now in the United States and a little bit around the world, uh, we're in, a, in the midst of a fascinating and beautiful social uprising. Um, the obviously Black Lives Matter has been something that has been happening for quite some time since, you know, Michael Brown and Jameer Rice and some of these individuals uh, that were unfortunately killed by police uh, a number of years ago. Um, but this year, it, it obviously has uh, garnered a lot of attention. Um, and I think the pandemic we have a, we can actually thank for some of that, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, a weird, uh, a weird connection that happened there, a collision that I think has actually helped amplify voices um, and amplify the amount of time that people have still talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, but I'm wondering is someone who is uh, both a passionate social justice advocate um, and educator and a, a passionate, proud member of the Latinx community. Um, right now, everybody's talking about Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And also, I think indigenous people have gotten brought into the picture as well, and rightfully so, um, in a beautiful way. Um, and shout out to half of Oklahoma right now. Um, yes. <laughs> um, but that's, that's got to be a weird place to live. Like, so where do I live now? Um, but... Uh, but still, I'm curious to hear, uh, as someone who believes in the movement and is proud of the movement that is, has, that is currently, uh, that we're in the middle of, um, but identifies as, uh, or who is a Latina, wh- tell me about that relationship. Um, because there are some ways that the Black Lives Matter movement will certainly help all underrepresented populations in the country. Um, but I'm wondering is, you know, could you speak a little bit more to that? Or also, is there something on the flip side of like kind of a, what about us moment and not Kelly Clarkson? Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I mean, you kind of mentioned this right now. I mean, I wholeheartedly believe that when we can in- address the injustices and inequities for, you know, one community of people, that there's a trickle effect across different, you know, marginalized underrepresented groups and, you know, right now, this is, this is the conversation that we need to talk about. The, the police violence, the, in, the way we treat Black folks, like there's, there's so many layers to the injustice that happens for that community. And in a lot of ways, it also impacts our community, right? Like we have folks in our community who also, you know, identify, might identify as Black or Afro-Latinx and understanding 
even within the Latinx community, how much, you know, internalized racism that we have to deconstruct too. I mean, the racism and colorism in our community is very real and very active. And so, you know, there's, there's ways that we can advocate for a movement like Black Lives Matter and also incorporate those same, you know, kind of anti-racist actions and learnings in within our own community as well. Um, and I say this as someone who is light-skinned, who is white passing, some might even say white, um, that is like a whole another conversation in and of itself. Um, but I, you know, I benefit too from the system that allows white privilege to exist. And so, and, and there's a lot of folks in the Latinx community that do too. Um, and that's, I think, one of the things that's so beautiful about our community is that, you know, the way people look and, and come into the space is so different. Um, and, you know, sometimes being in the community, you can look at someone and be like, yeah, like, oh, I think that person's Latinx. And you may or may not be right, but, you know, with Latin America was so much impacted too by, you know, by the enslavement of people, by the colonization of indigenous peoples. And so we have just such a broad spectrum. But with that, and particularly with, you know, the colonization of Western European people and white people, you know, the things that exist within that system also exist within our, within our community. So for me, you know, being able to advocate for Black Lives Matter is something that, you know, as an American, I think is my responsibility. And also as a member of the Latinx community is my responsibility to do the work internally too. First off, you just said a word, friend, um, and that was beautiful. <clears throat> um, and, and thank you, thank you for that. Uh, I, I think that it is it is such a a complex issue. There's so many layers to it, uh, and the fact that we are talking about it at all is good, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, yeah. because we know silence was sure as hell wasn't doing anything. Um, and uh, and 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 thank you, uh, thank you to the rest of us that feel comfortable, uh, but our comfort is not doing anything to help anybody. Um, and so, uh, so the way that you just put that was beautiful. I'm not even going to try to reframe it. Um, and uh, I think that for us, uh, for individuals that are trying to be a part of the movement, um, and who, uh, I guess who maybe don't identify as, as someone like uh, some, or someone who, I, not who does, I identify as white. I don't know if I hide that well. Um, but, uh, but still, I mean, what are your thoughts like right now? Like, how can we keep it moving? Um, here, you know, however many, what, 140 days since uh, Brianna Taylor was killed, right? Like, I mean, I don't know the exact number of days, but it's some astronomical disappointing figure like that. Um, like they just reopened finally Elijah, Elijah McClain's case. Um, and there's a whole, a whole bunch of stuff. We still don't know what's going on with George Floyd's murderers. Um, and so uh, there's so many levels to it. Um, and you can feel the government start to pull back a little bit from the idea of rerouting money um, from police departments to social services. And what does that look like? And, you know, are we going to do the same old thing where it's just we're just going to keep investing money in training, um, which can be half assed and not regulated. Um, right. And so. Uh, Right now, what would be your thoughts as to how individuals can kind of can can keep uh, keep on keeping on with the fight um, and making yeah. sure that it's staying present? Yeah, I mean, I think to when we think about like the systemic issues and how big some of these injustices are, like it can get very overwhelming. 
Like, so, like, how do I as one person affect, you know, essentially, I mean, racism and these injustices, it, it's like it, another pandemic in and of itself. So how am I as one person supposed to do that? And so I always, you know, prompt folks to take a step back and say, what's within your sphere of influence? Like, mm -hmm. who are the folks that are within your sphere of influence? If you volunteer for an organization, if you, you know, work for a company, what is your sphere of influence there? And where can you start to affect change? Um, who are those folks that you can bring in to, you know, if you don't feel like you have power in a space, who is that person that has power and how can you bring them into the conversation and advocate for needed change? And of course, to be able to do that, you have to be able to do the self-work too. And mm -hmm. so much of that, and, you know, I feel like this is all over the internet, but you have to be willing to get uncomfortable. Like this is messy and you're probably going to step in it at some point and that's okay. Like just learn from the moment and do better next time. Yeah. And and I feel like that's that's what can be so powerful. You know, when you when you look at the different systems that exist, I mean, they all start at an individual level. Right. So how are you having conversations across the dining table? How are you mm. calling in your family members who might be saying problematic things? Like, how yeah. can how can you even just get your family? Maybe they're not saying anything problematic, but like, how do you get them to think critically about, you know, their own identities and their own privilege and what they can do to affect change? Um, so. To me, I feel like that's often one of like the best starting points. Obviously, there's lots of other things you can do. Like you can do the trainings, you can read the books, you can donate the money. Um, and that is helpful too. But what I will offer too is there's so many resources out there. And I don't, I think sometimes people feel like I have to read, I read these 10 books and therefore I'm woke. Um, but you can read one book and and really find meaning in that book and apply it to your your day-to-day -day life. So I think yeah. this work is exhausting, but it's needed and important like i i feel like i'm always simultaneously energized and exhausted doing this work but it's worth it to me um and yeah yeah what, what what's one book that you would recommend right now for people yeah um so i am currently reading through white fragility and how to be an anti-racist mm -hmm. um so those are two books that i have been slowly but surely reading through um they're not the quickest reads <laughs> no, and I am not like a nonfiction reader. I, I'm a huge reader, but very rarely read nonfiction books. So I have mm. been like, and, and then for me too, with those books, I sometimes read a page and then I'm like, I need to reread this again. And then I need to sit with it for a little yeah. while. Um, so those are, are two really great books. I also, and it's this is a book I need to revisit because it's been a few years, um, but I have the book, The Art of Effective Dialogue. Um, and that has been really helpful for me as an educator and as a facilitator um, to use some of those content uh, concepts when I'm engaging in like training settings or with conversations with people too. So, um, I love that. yeah, Hell so, yeah. but there's so many other books out there. And truthfully, I think I even have a stack of like 10 more books between Jesse and I's combined libraries that I still need to read. Um, so if you're not a book person, there's lots of videos, there's lots of articles, like it's there for you. Just got to tap into it. Yeah. Amen. And I want to come back to this idea that, uh, that you spoke about as far as like doing the work where you live or kind of where you are or noticing what's going on. Uh, but before then we're going to do a segment if that's okay. Oh, not these two again over here. Okay. All right. Break it up. You two. Enough of this. Now. Oh yeah. That's right. That's right. You're not smiling now, are you? All right, that is only the sign that we've gotten a little bit too deep and we got to come back. Don't shake your head at me, Christina. Um, <laughs> 
my friends. Uh, Christina, this is a segment of the show that we call things uh, that you didn't know about me, that you didn't know you needed to know, and now you're glad that you did. Please note that the name of the segment changes every time, and that's how I like it. So how's it going to work is that we're going to share some random facts about each other. Um, and so I'll go first, and then I want you to share one, and then we're going to come back to some of these other conversations. So, yeah. <clears throat> uh, so. The storm, uh, the storm that has been in uh, in the Atlantic and now coming off the Atlantic now and obviously plowing its way through the uh, uh, <clears throat> mid-Atlantic and, and up north, New England, um, reminds me whenever I see pictures of waves like that, the very first time I ever swam in the ocean, and I grew up pretty close to the water, uh, the very first time I ever swam in the ocean, my parents used to tell me, James, uh, make sure, the very first time I was like, how do I swim? Like the waves are so much bigger than what I'm used to. And they said, well, just jump over the waves, just jump over the waves. <laughs> And I was like, all right, cool. I play basketball. You can, I got hops. You know what I'm saying? We out here. And so, uh, so anyway, so I would jump over the waves and then a white cap came along um, and a much bigger wave. I was not given any instructions about this wave. And so I, so I tried to jump over it and I got absolutely rocked by this wave and I dragged myself up to the shore and I was like, you said to jump, you said to jump over it. And they said, oh yeah, don't jump over the white ones. <laughs> So there's a little random story about me. What do you got, Christina? Um, I'm going to go back to, um, because you just finished Boy Meets World. Uh, yes. So uh, Danielle Fischel, who plays Topanga, I don't know who hasn't watched Boy Meets World, but in case you haven't, that's who that actress is. Um, so she actually went, we overlapped at Cal State Fullerton for a little bit. Like she went back to school and like people would see her on campus. But for, I think like two or three years while I was in college, I worked at Victoria's Secret. And I was a shopper and a bra specialist there. And she came in and I got to work with her and sh and help her shop, except at the time, Victoria's Secret wasn't very inclusive in their sizes. So I had sent, ended up sending her to Nordstrom's to the dismay of my manager, but we didn't have a fitter, but it was so cool. And I was like, oh my gosh, I like, this is cool. Um, so yeah, that's, I guess. Was she the, cool in person? So nice. She was yeah. so nice and so kind and was even kind when like we didn't have anything for her and I had to send her somewhere else. Um, so that was a really cool experience. I guess it's the perks of going to school in Orange County. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, I love that. And normally we do a Q&A at the end of this. Uh, my friends, just so you know, an inappropriate question for the Q&A would be around Daniel Fischel shopping at Victoria's <laughs> Secrets. But feel free to ask Christina any other question. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I love it. Christina, tell me, um, do you have any um, uh, do you have any fears? Do you have any things that that you uh, that you fear that you're just uh, that just kind of like rack your brain from time to time? Um, yeah, like like real fears or like weird fears. Let's start. Like, let's start with a weird fear first, because that just sounds that sounds fun. I'll, yeah, but you share a weird fear and I'll share a weird fear. How's that sound? Yeah. yeah. OK, um, I can't kill bugs for the life of me um like big bugs that will crunch that will make a noise i can't yeah. do it so for my clemson folks that are on y'all know about my clemson shenanigans with bugs but um would yeah. you save the bugs like do like the cup and the paper technique or would it be like somebody else get in here and get to crunching no um so i would get a cup but i would spray like bug killer spray on the floor and slide the cup over it and let the bug die. And then like a day later when it was dead, I would like sweep it up and get rid of it. <laughs> so like 
like folks would walk into my apartment at Clemson and I live for those of y'all on from Clemson. I lived in Calhoun courts and which is like on the edge of the woods. And there was just always bugs. One time there was a lizard in my apartment. And so they would walk in and there would be like four or five cups around the floor with just like dead bugs in there. Yeah. That wasn't yeah. like, those weren't like dead soldiers from flip cup the night before. <laughs> no. uh, those were dead bugs with an intentionally flipped cup. Um, <clears throat> well, there you go. There you go. Yeah. So, so to his dismay, Jesse is the designated bug killer in this house mm. um, or bug getter because okay. I won't do it if they crunch. And here's the funny thing about I feel like I feel like Jesse's I mean Jesse Jesse's a man, right? He's a power lifter. He's a he can he can do what he can do what he does, but I feel like Jesse also has a probably a pretty good squeal, also. Um <laughs> he, he puts on a good a good front. I will good say for that. Him. Good for him. Uh I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um <clears throat> that's awesome. Uh I have a a weird uh, a weird fear of butterflies. I find them to be very erratic. I don't know where they're going. I don't know what's happening. I can't trust them. Like everything else I'm like I know I know your plan. With butterflies I'm like I don't even know what your goal is. I don't know where you're going. I don't know what your flight path is. Uh, and so I just, I, I don't, I'm, I don't run from butterflies whenever butterflies are around. I'm like, because <laughs> I just like, I'm like, don't do like, it's a little bit like uh, of mice and men. And I'm like Lenny and they're the rabbit where I'm like, don't move. Cause you're going to kill the butterfly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> how about, how about the next, uh, how about the next level? What's uh, uh give me a slightly deeper fear. Yeah. Um, I, I have very, deep fears of inadequacy, but more specifically being inadequate to a point of letting others down. Mm -hmm. Like I will let myself down before I try to let someone else down. Yeah. 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 What, tell me, what does, what does letting somebody else down look like to you? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it could be as small as something as like not meeting a deadline or, you know, if we're working collaboratively on something, not pulling my end of it, um, it can also look like not not being there, not being present, not being supportive. Um, you know, whatever whatever that might that reason might be. So yeah, what drives yeah. that fear? Do you know where that fear comes from? Um, well, if we were going to go back to a counseling skills class from grad school. That's the moment I learned about, I'm going to totally butcher it now, but it's like the family therapy, you know, family structure, family, sure, I don't know, yeah. whatever someone it's called. Somebody put it in the chat. Yeah. Someone, someone yeah. remembered. <laughs> yeah, 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 someone type in the comments if you remember. Um, but yeah, I remember the class, the week, that week where we were learning about that theory specifically, um, we were talking about our, our roles in our families. Like what, what was your role? Who are you? And I was like the overachiever and in everything that I did. And I think for a lot of things, I honestly didn't really, this is like humble brag, but not really humble. Like I didn't have to try really hard to be good at most of the things that I took on. Or my mom will probably say, I just stopped doing the things I wasn't good at. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, so that's who I was. And it, it was that moment in grad school where I was like, oh, because then the next question was, now, how does that role like show up for you today? And yeah. I was like, Ooh, that was a deep class. Um, so, so yeah, I think it just has, 
that perfectionist tendencies. I'm a I'm an Enneagram one. Um, so all about like the greater good and perfectionism and all that jazz. So um I think that's probably where a lot of it stems from. And I just like want to make people happy and yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's gotta be so interesting. I mean, you are a uh uh let's let's call you a newlywed, right? What are we a year a year and a half in, a year in, two years? We two? No, a year and a half. Oh, a year and a half. I can't do okay. that. That's fine. Is your will put it in here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, so so as a as a newlywed um, who uh, who moved to North Carolina um, to be uh, you know fortunately at a job that that understood your value and and knew that you were valuable even working remotely um, and so they took a shot on on uh, on on letting you work remotely and you blew it out of the damn water. Um, and so, but uh, you moved to another part of the country to be closer to, uh, to be closer to your partner slash in the same building. And, uh, and so, uh, but it's, it's interesting to carry that perfectionism into a relationship. That's a lot of, that's a lot of weight to carry for you. How was that? How was that transition um, for you in letting letting your partner, letting Jesse see the imperfect side of you? Now I know that you're someone who's no stranger to embarrassing yourself from time to time, um, but that's not really what we're necessarily talking about here. But how was how was that letting somebody in and knowing that they were going to love you potentially even more because of it? Yeah. Well. I think even before we actually lived together, I mean, Jesse will tell you he knew what he was in for. Mm-hmm. Oh, almost there we go. We're we're almost there at a year and a half. Um, I can't do fast math, so to have to count from February to now was not going to happen for me. Um, so, yeah. So I, I'm grateful for that, and I'm grateful that never, never at any point has he like ever had me questioning that he cared about me with the weird quirks and all. And I will acknowledge, and we've talked about this probably the last couple months um, have not been like the best partner or roommate. (laughs) Um, I have probably worked way too much and I'm getting ready to try to take some time off. Um, And so, yeah, I think it was, it was hard at first. I mean, I think even the first couple months of dating, I think I knew, deep down that like he, he was who I wanted to be with for the rest of my life. Um, But I was really scared to say that, like, I was really scared to date someone in the field. Um, I was really scared to like commingle my professional and my personal life. Like we're both at Clemson working in student affairs. Um, And I just, yeah, it was really nerve wracking. And finally I was like, well, who am I? I mean, who am I kidding? Like, this is who I know this is who I want to marry. And um, you know, even though we weren't necessarily in a rush to get married, but I just knew, and I mean, he'll, I, he'll probably tell you that he knew sooner than I did, which is probably true, but, um, it was really scary. It's really scary to be vulnerable with someone and then moving in together. I mean, we both knew going into it that, um, you know, we wanted to live together before we took any next step in our relationship to make sure that we wouldn't drive each other up the wall. Yeah. Um, and and truthfully, the first few months of living together, I remember it was my first or second, I think it was my first like real visit back to the office. It was about five months or so after Jesse and I moved in together. And I remember everyone was like, so 
what's what's happening? Are you going to get married now that you've been living together? What's next? And I was like, I think Jesse's still trying to figure out if he can live with me because I am not an easy person to live with. I'm like, I like things to be cleaned a certain way and organized a certain way. And I also like love being together and need my me time sometimes. Like I was like, I don't know about it. And then I ended up going home that weekend and he proposed. So Clearly it was a different space um, but <laughs> than I was, um, but, and clearly I said yes, but it was, it was scary. It's scary to be vulnerable, but also there was never any point where I didn't feel supported in that and then opening up to that. Yeah. That power. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what comes first in relationships, love or vulnerability. Um, but I know that they're pretty quickly, uh, they follow each other pretty quickly. It's probably vulnerability first. Um, but, uh, I think that it is beautiful to hear you talk about that because I mean, you are someone who loves things to look a certain way, right? Like anytime I've walked into the house, I'm like, well, don't touch anything. Um, <laughs> even though that's the opposite of how you want me to feel, right? Like, right. but, um, and, uh, it's, it's not that it's not like I'm on eggshells when I'm in the house, please don't hear that. Um, but it's very, it's just, it's an immaculate space, right? It's just beautiful, um, meticulously cleaned and whatnot. And, and I know that it's something that is, uh, that that matters to you. But it's so hard uh, because you also work in an industry, you work in an industry that consistently pushes perfectionism onto its people, right? You work, you work in the sorority world um, and in the sorority world, right? There's this idea that, that perfectionism is the, the only way that people are going to want to join your organization. We have to look a certain way on these nights and we have to do this and dress this way and match this way. Um, so it's interesting the way that your perfectionism kind of folds into some of the work that you do, but yet you also fight against those norms wholeheartedly. How is that for you? Yeah, it's hard. Um, you know, it's interesting too, as I've grown older, how my values have evolved and how my outlook on things have evolved. You know, when I was, when I was in college and when I was a leadership consultant, I lived for sorority recruitment. Yeah. Like I, I loved it. It was great. And that's really the aspect, one of the biggest aspects where it's about, you know, how you look, how you present yourself, what your conversations look like. Um, and there's like this stuff throughout the year that's like, if you're going to wear letters, you have to be like, like 80 pie ready, right? Like you have to look a certain way when you wear letters. So you represent us well. And, and that was ingrained in me. And, and I would still say that there's still some aspects of that that are ingrained in me, right? Like even you know, the way that I might engage in like public channels is still authentically me, but I still have moments where I'm like, what is this going to sound like? Is this going to be effective? Just because that's so ingrained in me. But um, I am also here for now as I've gotten older, like what is like meaningful, authentic connection look like? And how do we create spaces where our members can be their authentic selves and the space where they can, where they can thrive and they feel like yeah. they belong and for me, that mindset is so centered around the work that I do, both just generally in my job and also in the diversity, equity, and inclusion work that I do in my job. Um, and so being able to grant that grace to people to let them know that who they bring to the table is is more than good enough. You know, like they can be their authentic selves in ADPI and find those connections. And I hope that we can, not just in my own organization, but across all sororities, like continue to incorporate that mindset. And that's what I'm hoping even coming into this whole, like what, what fall looks like for COVID. I mean, I feel like this 
has made everyone, what regardless of what industry you're in, step back and think about what's important. Like what's important for the employee experience, what's important in our operations and really requiring us to kind of um, pare down what we've been doing so we're focusing on the important stuff. And I think this is a cool opportunity for us, whether our folks are meeting virtually or social distance to be able to focus on like what's most important. And to me, that's, you know, in my space, building meaningful connections and developing women to be their best. And part mm -hmm. of that is, is giving them space to be their authentic selves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. I agree with you. I think it's beautiful. I'm currently in a, an interesting situation in my life um, where uh, Tina and I live in Minneapolis. We, uh, we just bought a house that hopefully we're going to close on if nothing goes wrong um, in three weeks, which means we, who knows what the hell is going to happen. Um, but, uh, but hopefully, hopefully it'll work out. Um, but, uh, but we're excited. And we, you know, we started to dream about like, what does our life look like, right? Like we're probably going to live in that house for, you know, maybe 10 years or more, who knows. Um, but, uh, but still, and thinking about it, it's like, all right, well, how are we going to build community? What are ways to build community? Uh, neither of us really are, are, we're not really religious people. So the church isn't a place where we're going to do it. Um, but, you know, we thought about ways to get involved socially and stuff like that. And, and one thing is that I love to play golf, right? Um, and I love to play golf. And so I grew up in a household where my father was a member at a country club and it wasn't some crazy hoi folloi, you know, whatever, whatever country club, but it, it still was a country club, right? It still was a membership. It still was by nature exclusionary, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, but at the same time, I'm like, well, but that was a cool experience because I love to play golf. I love the fact that I could build community. I could meet other individuals um, that are of, of a level of success that I would be excited to have in my network, right? Like, and just you know, the, the old catchphrase, your, uh, your network divides your net worth kind of thing. And so it's like... I never want to be the smartest person in the room. Um, I never want to be the most successful person in the room. So how can I surround myself by a community where that could better me in that way um, while I get to do a hobby that I really love and enjoy getting better at um, and could also potentially have a place for if we're fortunate to have kids where it's like, hey, you know, there's a pool for the kids to swim in or there's tennis or there's, I don't know, whatever the hell else happens at, uh, at, at country clubs. I don't really know. Um, but... <laughs> But it's fascinating to be there while at the same time thinking about uh, thinking about like I'm passionate about social justice. I'm passionate about inclusion, creating spaces where people can belong and and whatnot. And I, so I went and toured. I went and played a, a country a golf course recently that my buddy is a member at. Um, and uh, and literally I saw a wall of all the members in the clubhouse. And there was one black guy and I was like, oh, look, it's everybody's black friend. Right. And my buddy like let off an awkward chuckle because he knew it was true. Um, and so it's a fascinating thing because you work, you work in an industry that is that struggles with diversity and inclusion um, and that is working to become more inclusive and has been putting in some work, but at the end of the day, it's still about the bottom dollar. It's still about, there's a lot about image that still matters. Um, and that's, that's a tough thing that, that I know you are fighting the good fight against. So here's my question. Took a long walk for a short drink here. Um, and that is, do you think it is better to fight the good fight from within or from the outside? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think there's options for both, but I think in spaces where there is like a selective membership process, whether it's a country club, whether it's 
you know, the plethora of member organizations that exist out there, whether it's a sorority or fraternity. Um, I mean, I think that at times there can definitely be pressure put from external entities um, to affect change. But, you know, I, for me, can't imagine not doing this work from the inside. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I feel very fortunate that, you know, I have relationships in our organization that give me access to folks in leadership. Um, and I have experiences in the organization that give me folk, access to folks in leadership in a way that like, you know, our 220,000 plus members may not have. Yeah. Um, and so for me in that space, it's using, you know, the power and the access that I have to have these important conversations. And that's what I have, you know, really tried to infuse into my work these last four years that I've been in the, the role. So I, I mean, for me, I think the change can happen from the inside. I, I do think, you know, I feel like the question a lot of times lately is like, do you just fully dismantle it and start over? Or do you try to fix what's already there? Mm -hmm. And I kind of think sometimes it's a little bit of both. Like, I think there's some processes that we have to look at and just totally upend. And I also think that there's other things where we can start to, you know, understand the impact that they've had. You know, for for me and my work specifically, you know, I am with an organization that has an exclusionary past and we have perpetuated a lot of the oppression and racism that exists in our society and on our campuses. And because of that, I feel the responsibility to you know, as, as a staff member in this organization to learn from that and, and use that learning to make sure we can do better moving forward um, and, and to help our members understand, you know, how to do better moving forward. Like we, we have that responsibility, you know, I think in a, in a college setting, for example, particularly at, you know, at, at public institutions, you know, there's a lot of stuff that students can do and never be held accountable for because it's under, you know, protected speech or whatever that might be. But us as a private organization, if they're one of our members, we can hold them accountable. And, and that's a way to affect change, you know, on an individual level. Like we can hold an organization accountable in a way that maybe the university might not be able to do, again, particularly at public institutions where, where things might be considered protected speech. Um, so that's that's where I look to to my work to see, you know, how do we affect that change from within, within our leadership, within our members, um, because we we are a microcosm of our greater society. And while, you know, I think everyone has different feelings about dismantling, abolishing versus keeping the system intact. I know from what I've seen in other situations, oftentimes when you dismantle the 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 problems are still existing, like they're not going to go away because they're a microcosm of our greater society. So why might as well try to do the internal work? Yeah. Yeah, I love the way you thought about that. Uh, it's a question that I've often obviously racked my brain, and I'm really, I'm really like the way that you answered it because I think it means I can join a country club. And so uh, thank you for that. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, but seriously, uh, but it just, it's just important to think about is like, you know, what are the circles that you run in, right? Like I even run in, uh, in uh, the National Speakers Association, which is an organization that has a lot of affluence in it, a lot of history and a lot of tradition and a lot of uh, whiteness. Um, and, uh, and so what does that look like? Um, I have a good friend of mine who's been on the show before, Jessica Pettit, um, who is on a board, who's been a board member of that organization. And, and she's like, I've joined the board so I could try to change it. Um, and uh, I see the value that the organization brings to so many. 
and there's just some ways that we're taking some missteps. And so, uh, yeah, that's always a fascinating question. What you brought up is, do you take it all down or do you kind of work with what you got? Um, what is, what is easier to do? Um, and, uh, I guess it probably depends on how far gone it is, right? It's kind of like when you get in an accident, is this car totaled or is it going to be worth the effort to, you know, uh, to, to make it? And I don't know how you make that choice, but I love, Christina, that you have made that choice and that you are putting in the work. Uh, and I admire the work that you do and the way that you do it. Uh, and uh, those women are, uh, whether they know it or not, and I believe they do, uh, are grateful to have you because you certainly make that organization and the whole industry that you work in better. So I can't thank you enough yeah. for what you do. I'm so excited that you joined me in the diner tonight, Christina. How you feeling? Good. I mean, you know, I always love talking to you, but now I'm going to be wired after this and Jesse's going to be like in bed and I'm going to be up playing The Sims or doing something dumb. Probably. <laughs> I'm so awake and energized. That is a fun, that's another fun quirk about you that you do love The Sims. Um, I do love The Sims. That's yeah. so fun. That's so fun. Um, Christina, it has been so special getting to hang out with you. I cannot thank you enough. Um, and, uh, for those of you that are listening uh, to the podcast right now, uh, make sure that you uh, that you check out the show notes uh, where you can learn more about where to find Christina and how to get in contact with her. Uh, she's doing some pretty incredible work, uh, and I recommend following up with her too if you have any d instructional design questions, social justice uh, matters, and whatnot. Just a, just a great resource to have in your pocket for sure. Um, and so thank you all so much for listening on the podcast. And always, as always, if you're interested in hearing the Q&A with Christina, please feel free to jump to my YouTube page uh, so you can uh, see what some other individuals had some questions for, uh, for Christina, just so you can learn a little bit more about her brilliance. Thanks so much for tuning in y'all and take care. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. <laughs> <laughs> if you do me a favor and smash that subscribe button, that would be dope. And also, if you could leave a review on iTunes, well, come on now. You're going to make me blush. <laughs> also, if you want to be a part of the action, we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next. Also, while we're on the subject, I'm James T. Robo all over the internet. I post meaningful content on Instagram, witty content on Twitter. Let's get connected in some other places, folks. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight, please check out the show notes. My friends, until next time, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. Y'all take care.